Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Coronavirus again dominated the news across the national park system this past week as more and more units closed down in a bid to slow the spread of the disease. Among those that shut down to the public were Grand Canyon National Park, Big Bend National Park, Buffalo National River, and Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. A call to close the entire park system came from the National Parks Conservation Association. You can find those and other stories about the national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. We're going to take a trip to start this week's show, at least an audio trip of sorts, to the heart of Yellowstone National Park and its wild kingdom, a place where wolves, grizzlies, and elk roam free, and sandhill cranes catch your attention with their curious chortling. And Dan Pushkar, the president and CEO of the Public Lands Alliance, discusses how its membership works to provide educational and interpretive materials for the parks and how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted those groups. Finally, I leave you with some suggestions on what books should definitely be in your home library on national parks. Yellowstone's Wild Kingdom by Kurt Repencheck. It was, I guess, larger than a small saucier pan. Pressed into the wet volcanic shoreline sands near the end of Yellowstone Lake's south arm, the paw print with its formidable claws delivered an unmistakable message. We had entered the home of Ursus Arctis Horribilis, grizzly bear. There were other messages, too. Practically overrunning the bear's imprint was a series of wolf tracks, Canis lupus in lope. And then there were dainty tracks I figured sandhill cranes had left. For five days in early September, along with two friends, I chased summer's waning warmth by canoe and kayak deep into Yellowstone National Park's backcountry reaching a wild spot that put on a show that surely has been performed for centuries. The park's namesake lake, covering 136 square miles and wrapped by 110 miles of shoreline and 2 million or so mostly wild acres, is a tempting setting for exploring a landscape unchanged by humans. Yellowstone Lake, North America's largest body of water above 7,000 feet in elevation, on calm days is inviting and picturesque. But here, the high elevation weather patterns can quickly transform the lake into an inland sea with six-foot waves and numbing waters that make it highly unlikely that you'll survive 20 minutes immersed. As each paddle stroke pulled us farther and farther south from the dock at Grant Village, it didn't take us long to encounter Yellowstone's wild side the rich empire of nature that the park's boundaries protect in this ever-shrinking world. Bald eagles and osprey watched us drift by from their roosts high in lodgepole snags along the shores. One eagle had a wingspan we guessed reached six feet, if not more, a feathery spread we marveled at as the bird lifted effortlessly off its perch and soared over our heads just inside the lake's flat mountain arm. 
That evening, as we enjoyed the pristine setting from our first night's campsite on a small bluff overlooking the lake, a woofing and huffing carried out of the woods, reminding us that we were not necessarily at the top of the food chain. As night took over, we enjoyed the bugling of bull elk and rut, hoping to build their harems. Hours later, some of nature's alarm clocks, honking Canada geese and yipping coyotes, signaled dawn. But those were just the opening acts for the coming days. The day's paddling took us to the bottom of the south arm where it jabs into the two-ocean plateau. As I came ashore in search of our camp near Chipmunk Creek, the smatterings of predator paws on the beach were eye-catching. I quickly scanned the shoreline and meadow behind it to make sure I didn't need to turn tail and shove the canoe back in the lake. That evening, as we sat around our small, flickering campfire, a mule deer doe with her twin fawns provided some entertainment by prancing through the camp. As night fell, passed, and gave way to dawn, the bull elk again revved up, the males vying to outdo each other with their guttural bugling and bellowing aimed at impressing cow elk. Against their squeals, whistles, coughs, and grunts, the cacophonous rattling and trumpeting from sandhill cranes roosting not far down the shoreline, where Chipmunk Creek enters the lake, was surreal. Though the rising and falling pitter-patter of rain kept us largely tent-bound that day, when the drizzle finally ebbed in the late afternoon, we exited our tents, only to find a grizzly working over the meadow adjoining ours. In midsummer, the meadow would be a rich source of food, thanks in part to the strawberry plants woven into the meadow's surface. We estimated the bear, a somewhat calming 300 yards or more away, to be a young adult in the 400-pound range. Thankfully, it paid us no attention, focusing instead on his or her efforts on whatever morsels could be found in the meadow. The grand finale came as night again turned into day. Following an evening cracked open at times by lightning bolts from rumbling thunderstorms passing to the north, the pre-dawn murkiness queued up a rich, melodious howl that rose and fell and rose again as it carried on the air. Perhaps it was the wolf's presence that silenced the elk and the cranes that had been so vocal the day before. To venture into Yellowstone, even with its steaming thermal vents and whistling geysers, would be a lesser experience without such a wild kingdom. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org.
Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom Three, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Public Lands Alliance is a network of organizations that work in the realm of public lands to help us better understand those landscapes and gain more from our visits to national parks and forests. They provide interpretive materials and educational programs. The members range from the Alaska Geographic and High Cascades Forest Volunteers to the Western National Parks Association and the Will Rogers Ranch Foundation and many of our National Park Friends groups. How has their work been interrupted by the coronavirus pandemic? To find out, we've asked Dan Pushkar, the Alliance's president and CEO, to join us today. Welcome to The Traveler, Dan. Thanks so much for having me, Kurt. So before we get into how the pandemic is affecting your membership, can you touch on some of the work they do to help improve our visits to national parks and other public lands? Absolutely. Members of the Public Lands Alliance include more than 100 organizations that are operational partners to the National Park Service. As you mentioned at the top of, of this podcast, the kinds of work they do is many and varied, but at the end of the day, they are looking to provide that extra excellence, that extra support and capacity that the federal government alone cannot provide to the visitor experience and to the preservation and protection of our parks and other treasured landscapes across the country. What does that work look like? They are operating the residential environmental learning centers we find in dozens of parks across the country, bringing in school students for week-long experiences to know more about the science and ecology behind what is happening in our parks and how to become better stewards of them when they grow up. So those would be places like uh, the North Cascades Institute or the Scudic Institute on uh, Acadia National Park? Those are perfect examples. We also have uh, Nature Bridge and the uh, Education Center at the Conservancy for Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Uh, there are a wide array of these groups. They represent a piece of our membership. We have conservation corps like the Student Conservation Association that are running trails, crews, and other units across our National Park Service that are providing interns uh, to help do the work of conservation in parks. We have cooperating associations who are operating the nonprofit stores in almost every single one of the 419 units of the National Park Service. For, for many parks that, that can't stand up, say, an independent friends group, 
This is their connection to having an operational nonprofit partner, not just to create interpretive products to sell and, and help visitors continue their memories long after they've, they've been there at first, but all of these folks are providing cash and other program support aid back to those parks. And then of course we do have philanthropic friends groups, those who are there raising money for capital campaigns, for conservation efforts, uh, for educational programming. When we think about that extra bit of excellence we see in our parks, one facet of our membership is most likely at the heart of it. Yeah, and of course, um, as the coronavirus pandemic spreads across the country, more and more national parks are, are closing down in their entirety. We've been keeping a list on National Parks Traveler of those units that have closed down, as well as um, some of the partial closures. But I think at last count, it was almost four dozen units in the national parks that have closed Places such as Yellowstone and Grand Teton and Yosemite, Valley Forge National Historical Park. And there are organizations in your membership that work in all these places. So they must be uh, impacted to a certain degree. Oh, absolutely. And when we think about what that impact is, there's so many different ways of trying to tackle uh, this question, uh, given the different kinds of work that our members do. But let me give you a couple of examples. Please. Uh, in many respects, I think our, our members were really at the forefront of helping the parks to understand the challenges that were presented by operating some of the kinds of visitor services we have in parks during a pandemic. I think you've reported quite extensively yourself on some of the decision-making that was going into that. And it was often our membership uh, speaking up and saying, hey, we have staff that are concerned for themselves, concerned for the visitors that they would touch, concerned for the students that we would need to bring in as educators. We need to, we need to be careful and ensure that parks are not a place that that is contributing to the problem rather than, as parks should always be, a solution. Mm -hmm. um, so even though uh, the list of full closures is small, I think what you are finding across the country is that most visitor centers are closing. Many, many visitor centers are closing. And what that inevitably leads to is a closure of those park stores. You will find that the, the residential environmental learning centers are, are closing their doors because, of course, bringing in students into close quarters at this time is, is not in keeping with public health directives. And so whether the revenue you raise to put into your nonprofit mission comes through sales at a physical store inside a, a, vis a park visitor center, or whether it comes from schools that contribute to giving their students this once in a lifetime opportunity, those revenue sources are closing, uh, have closed. And I think, as you can imagine, even those of our groups that are truly focused on raising philanthropic dollars, I think we all recognize that there is a great threat out there to our society, uh, that there are a lot of calls as uh, the federal and state governments recognize the challenges they are facing to, to send donations to people in need right now. And so I think across our community, we're 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 facing some some challenging times. There, there's very little question about it. 
Sure. And and with your members, um, without them being able to work, it's kind of a double whammy because, you know, they've got employees and, and, and bills to meet, as well as, you know, they provide a contribution to the parks that they operate in. 100%. Absolutely. And it is that double-edged sword, the fact that they do have two missions they attempt to meet, the impact for parks, but also their financial bottom line, essential to their nature as nonprofit organizations. And, and both can be in distress. Certainly the financial piece is the, is the hardest one of that right now. We have been tracking, our members certainly have been tracking the stimulus efforts coming out of Washington, D.C. to address what's happening to small businesses, to address the uh, tourism uh, and uh, recreational communities. Um, We saw in this last big stimulus effort, a huge effort at airlines, for example, and hospitals that is all to the good. Uh, But I think you recognize, as we do, that Part of the great benefit of parks is that they are economic engines, engines that can't be used to the extent they normally are right now, cannot be producing for our local communities. And nonprofit partners are an essential part of that visitor experience about creating and relying upon that that kind of tourism. Uh, So there there is a struggle there, and our members are just as everyone else is, uh, confronted with really tough choices and a strong desire to make sure that their employees, their, their greatest asset, uh, are, are, are kept whole and, and, and treated with the respect and care that they deserve. It is a tough time to be doing that. So how are they caring for their employees? I mean, obviously, if you envision a, a two or even a six-week shutdown, that, that's one thing. But the way things are open-ended now, um, are, are there layoffs going on throughout your membership, do you know? There have been. The, just as with the rest of our society, the impacts are uneven, but uh, I think it has been hard for many of our members who reached and dug deep, say, into their operating reserve funds when a 35-day government shutdown happened and have not had a lot of time to replenish that, let's say. The, the effects have been uneven, but, but yes, there have been Uh, both some layoffs and furloughs within our community. I know there are also many organizations that when this first hit, when around March 15th, when things really started closing down, uh, many decided that they would go one week, two weeks, three weeks, finding ways to put all of their employees on, on administrative leave, find ways for them to telework. Not that everyone could do this, but many have have been struggling with that. And I know many more are poring over the new legislation that has been passed to see if there aren't ways to to make things even better. You're absolutely right that it's an open-ended situation. Operating reserves cannot go on forever. I think for our membership, they are of course worried about ensuring that they remain long-standing partners uh, for the parks. Uh, But I think all of us, those dedicated to the mission of the parks, whatever role we happen to play within it, want to make sure that the parks are made whole at the end of this too. Mm -hmm. our, Our members are thinking not just about how they get through this right now, but how do they make sure they can continue to be positive contributors to the parks a year from now, 10 years from now, 
how can we make sure in the stimulus packages that are being proposed that we make sure that parks that were expecting because it was completely reasonable and predictable to expect that they would be getting certain program services or dollars from nonprofits. Is there a way to, to make them whole at the end of this? Uh, since, since this is really hitting the bottom line of their partners in ways that we never could have imagined. Yeah, I know for myself professionally, um, I rely on uh, many of your members uh, to get my job done. I've got uh, uh, bookshelves with hundreds of volumes of books from around the national park system that are great research tools as well as provide uh, many hours of entertainment for myself trying to decide where in the park system to go. Now, while many of us have had our national park visits curtailed uh, and even postponed, um, in fact, I was supposed to uh, my wife and I were going to go down to Canyonlands next week, but or last week, and that kind of got derailed by um, the shutdown. There still are ways to get enjoyment from the parks and to help out your membership, no? There are. There are. You know, we, we want, let me say, I want everyone out there to be safe when visiting a national park. I can't imagine the strain that many of them are under in terms of wanting to provide, as they always do, an incredible visitor experience, yet also work within the public health directives that exist today. Keeping six feet of separation, ensuring that places that can get very busy keep safe physical distances. I've experienced that up close and personal here in Washington, D.C., where I live, and I'm, I'm sure you've been tracking as well what's happened down at the Cherry Blossoms. We, we need to ensure that parks that remain open do so and can be done in a way that is safe for, for those who want to participate in them. But absolutely, our members are trying to find ways that even if, say, their uh, store cannot be open, if their residential learning center cannot be open, if they are unable to put uh, conservation cores in front country areas, or if they're not able to uh, have the stewardship events for donors and members who provide philanthropic resources to parks that, that they were planning. They, they are seeking other ways to deliver on their mission and to stay connected with their own stakeholders. And it's run the gamut. Uh, we have at Great Smoky Mountains Association, for example, they've, they've taken what was a physical magazine and turned it virtual something called Smokies Live, inviting people to be a part of what's happening from uh, an educational interpretive standpoint in that beloved national park. Our, our members at uh, Lassen Association are taking pieces of things that they would have sold at their park store and finding ways to digitize them to make sure that anyone who visits, since their visitor center can't be open, is there is there a way to make sure that those People have access to the resources so that, that kids can learn while, while out in, in the park. And, and many more examples of, of trying to turn things virtually, create uh, assets that can be left behind for park visitors to encounter, and, and continue to give ways for, for people to be and feel connected to these places that they love. And, and many of your members, no doubt, have, have websites and stores on those websites where you can go and, and buy a book about the uh, bird life or the wildlife in a park or the historical facilities and, and stories that exist in these parks. Uh, and you can, you can stay at home and buy those books and, and improve your own knowledge about the parks and, and help out these groups at the same time. 
You absolutely can. Online retail is something that is absolutely important to many of our members who are able to, to do so. Some, as you can imagine, depending on the state or locality, can even have shelter-in-place options that are preventing them from keeping their online stores open because they still need people behind at, at warehouses, et cetera, to be able to do that work. But if you can find an open one, please, please take advantage of it. I'll tell you though, I, I love your enthusiasm for books. I, I, I wish everyone who, who can takes the time to read more about them. But I'll tell you what we've heard, what's really selling right now, puzzles. I think a lot of families have time around the, a, a table to be able to work on a 500, 1,000 piece puzzle. And uh, that's, a, that's a great thing to do when you might be at home longer than you expected. You know, Dan, I'm a, I'm a lover of puzzles and my in-laws are lovers of puzzles. I have a puzzle of Arches National Park upstairs that's probably 1,000 or 1,500 pieces that I've been working on for three months. It's about to drive me crazy. <laughs> the payoff. It's going to be so worth it when you're done. So <laughs> and I'll look at it for five minutes and tear it all apart and send it to my father-in-law. Let him puzzle over it. <laughs> We've been talking today with Dan Pushkar, the uh, president and CEO of the Public Lands Alliance, to find out how that network of organizations that work in the realm of our national parks are surviving during the coronavirus pandemic. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we're all together in hoping that this will soon be over and we can get back into the parks and on the ground with our feet. Thank you so much. Appreciate being here and appreciate you sharing the story of our members. They can't wait to all be back on the ground, able to serve our visitors and to support our National Park Service. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. Part of the enjoyment I get out of visiting the National Park System is preparing for those visits. Perhaps it's because I grew up reading books 
and poring over the monthly National Geographic magazines that mysteriously appeared in our mailbox. The result has been a home library with hundreds of volumes that open windows on national park wildlife, plant life, geology, and human history. These books are invaluable when I'm planning a park visit. They help me understand the basics of that specific park, the lay of the land, if you will. They aid my search for a new backpacking or paddling adventure or to see what lodging possibilities there are. They can provide a rundown on wildlife I might encounter or birds or plants I want to identify. And, of course, they document the human experience in these landscapes. Mine is no small library and not just focused on one or two or five national parks. It starts with Acadia National Park and runs all the way through Zion. Some volumes address natural history, some describe hiking trails, others delve into a park's cultural history. I'm always on the lookout for new books to add to my library, and sometimes they're old books as well. Some years ago, when my wife and I visited Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve, we spent a day in Juneau on our return trip and found a wonderful bookstore, the Observatory on Franklin Street, that had old copies of various Alaska Geographic publications. I came back home with two, one from 1975 on Glacier Bay and its geologic and human history, as well as its wildlife. The other, from 1988, focused primarily on the park's glaciers. And there, stashed away inside the pages of this edition, was a gorgeous map of Glacier Bay National Monument, as it was known at the time. The map lists the park's glaciers, as well as its various inlets and bays that together comprise the greater Glacier Bay. No doubt many of you have collected your own library of National Park volumes. For those who enjoy the literature around the National Park system, along with the many guidebooks and interpretive titles out there, I would suggest at a minimum that you make sure the following volumes are in your collection. The Birth of the National Park Service The Founding Years 1913 to 1933. This is a book I wish I had read many, many years ago. Told by Horace Albright not long before his death, it's a recounting of the establishment years of the National Park Service from one of the two men who literally created it and rightfully became legends in its history. This book explains the whole National Park idea from the get-go. You also should have My First Summer in the Sierra. A century after John Muir published My First Summer in the Sierra, a 100th anniversary edition of the book was released back in 2011, and it's one with striking photography. You can't have a National Park Library without at least one book by John Muir, and this is a good one. Another title you should consider, Uncertain Path, A Search for the Future of National Parks. The challenges facing the National Park Service and its collections of parks are daunting, perhaps more so than ever before due to the implications of climate change. William Tweed examined those challenges in his book, Uncertain Path, A Search for the Future of National Parks, which arrived back in 2010. And Tweed, by the way, long worked in Sequoia National Park and has years of on-the-ground experience from which to tell his story. A book that families will enjoy is 10 Best of Everything, National Parks. In a catch-all bid to categorize the national parks some years ago, the staff at National Geographic put this book together. It's a book of lists, with parks as a backdrop for those lists. And who doesn't love books of lists? And this is a great one for national parks. 
Another must book for your library is Ansel Adams in the National Parks. Long after his death, we continue to celebrate the brilliance of Ansel Adams, who arguably defined landscape photography, often while working in national parks, to capture the magnificence of nature. Just as you need a John Muir title in your library, you need an Ansel Adams. Ranger Confidential, Living, Working, and Dying in the National Parks, is a troubling book. Television shows love to portray park rangers as fit and polite, beaming dazzling smiles, displaying knowledge that knows no bounds, nerves of steel, and with dashing personalities. And then there are the realities, as former ranger Andrea Langford describes in her book. This is a sometimes disconcerting story from inside the National Park System that you should hear. Preserving Nature in the National Parks, a History. This title is from the late Richard West Sellers, a National Park Service historian and a gentleman whom I had the privilege of knowing. A decade after it first appeared on bookshelves, Preserving Nature in the National Parks came out in an updated version in 2009. It's one that follows the course of the National Parks and the National Park Service up through the Bush administration and into the early days of the Obama administration. This is an important read to understand natural resource management in the parks. If you're a frequent National Park visitor, you'll definitely want to have the complete guide to the National Park Lodges. Authors David and Kay Scott have been traveling the country to stay in as many lodges in the National Park System as possible. The latest edition of their book, I believe they're up to number nine, is ready to take its place in your home library. And after all, to visit the National Parks, you need to know where you're going to stay. Another thought-provoking book is The Soul of Yosemite, Finding, Defending, and Saving the Valley's Sacred Wild Nature by Barbara Morich. This book questions whether the National Park Service has lost its way in protecting and preserving the national park ideal. It's an equally disconcerting companion to Ranger Confidential, living, working, and dying in the national parks. Many other more recent titles should also be considered for your library. Books like In Defense of Public Lands, The Case Against Privatization and Transfer by Stephen Davis, or Civil Wars, Seeing the Conflict Through the Eyes of Historians. And another favorite of mine is First Impressions, A Reader's Journey to Iconic Places of the American Southwest, which recounts stories of the early explorers who encountered these places. And that's just a small number of titles that I've found valuable as both a parks traveler and as a journalist whose work is focused on national parks. You can find many other worthy titles in the Fireside Reads section of nationalparkstraveler.org. And you can let us know which books you would add to that list in a comment on The Traveler. So there you have it, my short list for must-have books for your National Parks Library. And remember, you can never have enough books in your library. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, we're open to your suggestions for future shows. You can offer them at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. Also, with more and more national parks closing to the public, now would be a great time to keep your favorite National Park Friends Group in mind with a donation or a purchase from their online stores. With the parks closed, so are their park stores, and the revenue falloff has been an incredible blow for some. For The Traveler... This is Kurt Repencheck. 
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.